generally the LLC is easier with a U.S. bank account and there's not any additional filing requirements. So you can do more stuff with it. But if you're actually doing business in the U.S., you know, you would never use the foreign court, but just with branch profit tax is way more complicated for no reason. You are listening to U.S. Tax, a podcast for Australian accountants with U.S. clients. Welcome to U.S. Update 16 of U.S. Tax. This is Heide Robson, and thank you for finding me here, hidden in the far corner of your podcast app. So this is the first update of your new U.S. Tax podcast, but it really is number 16. But it is the first update that didn't come across from Tax Talks, and it is the very first update to hit this channel. We will copy the other 15 episodes across over the next few days, but right now, U.S. 16 is all I can give you. So this podcast is the U.S. Tax podcast, or just short, U.S. Tax. I know it is very plain. We had plenty of names in the head to draw from. I wanted to call it U.S. Tax for non-resident aliens, because that is what most of us are, non-resident aliens. But the team vetoed that. And then I suggested U.S. Tax for aliens, but the team vetoed that as well. And then we had U.S. Tax for Australians, U.S. Tax Australia, U.S. Tax Talks, and then U.S. Tax Down Under won and got the most votes among us. And so we already did the music for U.S. Tax Down Under based on the song by Men at Work, which sounds like this. And Michael Murphy expertly composed this one. And I really like the music, but I just find U.S. Tax Down Under too long. It is too long to always say U.S. Tax Down Under. Could we talk on U.S. Tax Down Under? Have you done the show notes for U.S. Tax Down Under? It just is too long. And so I shorten it to U.S. Tax. But the music is too good to drop, so we keep it. And I also already had the voiceover done for U.S. Tax Down Under. You are listening to Australia's U.S. podcast for accountants, U.S. Tax Down Under, the podcast to expand into the U.S. But I shouldn't have chosen the word expand. That is not a good word right now on the 1st of March 2022. So instead of expand, it will just be a podcast for Australian accountants with U.S. clients. And I used the 12-year-old test. If a 12-year-old can say it, then it probably flows all right. You are listening to U.S. Tax, a podcast for Australian accountants with U.S. clients. So this is your new U.S. Tax podcast. But now, much more importantly, let's get to the topic for today. The taxation of non-ECI, non-FEDEP income in the U.S. disregarding any treaty position. In this episode... It gets very confusing and the point of contention is the taxation of US sourced non-ECI, non-FEDEP income. And I say FEDEP because I have started getting the impression that most people seem to say FEDEP. So the taxation of US sourced non-ECI, non-FEDEP income. And let me just quickly explain this term FEDEP. Gary Carter already mentioned in the last US episode. FEDEP stands for fixed, so F or determinable, so D, annual, A, or periodic income. So fixed or determinable, annual or periodic income. So think of interest, dividends, royalties, salary, wages, annuities, and so on. Any income that is paid on a regular basis 
following a formula that is FEDAP. And the taxation of FEDAP is straightforward. If U.S. sourced and not connected to U.S. trade or business, the payer has to withhold 30% withholding tax unless a treaty applies. And the taxation of ECI, so income effectively connected to U.S. trade or business, the taxation of ECI is also straightforward. Whoever this ECI is assigned to has to prepare a tax return and then pay tax in the U.S. on this ECI, like any other business, unless a treaty applies. The point of contention is income that is neither FEDAP nor ECI. In the last two episodes, Ross Treby and Gary Carter argued that all U.S. sourced income is taxable in the U.S. The only difference is how it is taxed, unless a treaty applies. So whether U.S. sourced income is ECI or not only matters for how it is taxed, not whether it is taxed. That is what Gary Carter said in the last U.S. update. But James Baker will argue in this episode that this is not correct, that a non-resident who derives income that is neither ECI nor FEDAP has no taxable income in the US. And that really surprised and confused me. And I argued with James for a long time because I didn't believe it, because it completely contradicted everything I had heard so far. But let's listen to James Baker. How's the Australian code written? Is it is it more readable? No, a lot worse, actually. I actually find your code easier to read than the Australian one. But maybe it's also because I haven't dwelled deep into the juicy bits of the IRC. You know, maybe there are... That I'm sure there are sections that are just as confusing as in the Australian one. Well, the, the code is like the top level, and then you have the regulations, which explain in much more detail, and then you have the court, applicable court cases, and then you have the other... Yeah, and then you have the treasury regulations, which are... Exactly. Hmm. So what's the... Pers- you were talking about a sale exchange of inventory property, right? Yes. So we first in 8A2B, we basically established that there are two buckets, US sourced non-ECI and then ECI. And so now we look at the uh, sourcing rules. And so there it very much depends on whether the product is purchased or produced. If it's purchased, then based on section 861A, the source of income is wherever the customer is. If you sell merchandise that you bought, if you sell that into the US, then the source of income is in the US. And it's funny because they only like they don't reference it the other way. That's the only so they have gains, profits and income derived from purchase of inventory property um, without the United States and its sale within the United States. They don't reference it here as you purchased it within the United States and sold within the United States. Yeah, then it's US sourced anyway. Yeah, yeah, but it would still be U.S. source, I guess, from its sale within the United States, which does not reference that specifically, but that's fine. So that's good. So that's still this. That's kind of what I said before. Yes, exactly. So if you sell product into the United States that was purchased by you, then the source of income is where your customer is. And so in our example, that would be in the U.S. So that would be U.S. sourced. But if you produce, so if your client produces the bathtubs themselves wherever in the world outside the US but produces it themselves then the source of income is where the production takes place and so that's based on section 863b2 but again this is only from the US tax perspective so if you're living outside the United States and you have to deal with your own sourcing rules based on your own tax code where you're a tax resident you know so that's why it's it's fun we have three 
rules we need to comply with. One is the US tax law, one is the Australian one, and then we have the tax treaty in between that kind of marries the two. So at the moment, I'm just trying to really understand the US tax position because those are the sourcing rules. Now it comes to ECI or non-ECI. So, and of course, that's a very gray area, whether you have a US trade or business is not defined in the code as you have explained in your podcast many times. But if we put this aside, then it's basically non-ECI income is only taxed in the US to the extent it is US sourced. And ECI is basically always taxed no matter where the source is, but there are exceptions. It's hard to be ECI without being US sourced. It's like, yeah. it's impossible, right? You can have a trip to the US and then you have a US trade, like you have effectively connected income and then you leave. And then the rest of the stuff isn't, you know, if, you, if you're just here for a little bit, uh, you could you could stop having a U.S. trader business, but it, that's why they have to differentiate the sourcing while you're earning while you're in the U.S. doing something in the U.S. I mean, it's usually like you wanted to talk, talk about products, but it's not going to happen like on on a one off on a product. It's either you do or you don't. You know, it's not like you're going to change operations. It's more for like people coming to the U.S. To deliver services, or maybe if you have a product business and you have to come to install the product. Um, that that used to happen a lot with with my clients. They would sell something and then they would send people here to install them. And that's when we have to really look at the the treaty, which helps us to really determine what they can do or what they can't do. But other than that, it's when when they're here earn, earning the making the money or whatever they get from their work here is what they pay tax on here. That's personal services. So they that's a completely different set of rules, which you know much better than I. I don't know. I'm just trying to make examples with products because but products aren't going to be like. It's not going to, they don't usually, if you have a products business, it's not going to change that much. You're going to probably operate one way or another way. If you have a warehouse and you're manufacturing the US, that's it. You're not going to just do that for half of your stuff generally. You know what I mean? So that's why it's more black and white for a, a products business. What I'm trying to get to later on is basically to show that having a US trader business is actually better in a lot of cases than to have non-ECI. Because with the US trade or business, you can claim tax deductions and you are only taxed at 21% if you're a foreign corporation. Whereas with non-ECI, you have a flat 30% withholding rate, always disregarding the treaty, of course. You know, the treaty will change it again. But what I'm aiming at is that having a US trade or business is actually not, not that. The common examples um, for this. So when you have US, the non-ECI US source income is, is really like the common things are dividends and exactly from US companies or, yeah yeah the EPTA, the EPTA stuff and and actually there's a really interesting part of that again about the services that's a mess but a really common one is is like real estate uh, rental property so if you have like a, a rental property in the US you have to make an election to treat it as a US trader business if you don't make that uh, effective election then you can't take your expenses and that they used to be like we had to attach a statement to the return, but now they added a checkbox to the uh, 1040NR. So now you can just check a box on the on the page five of the 1040NR. And no one did it. Like um, a lot of people, not no one, but like when clients would come to me after doing it themselves or having another person, they never made the election effectively. And I'd never seen the IRS even enforce it. But technically, you're supposed to make this election to trade as US. Trade or business. So you can take depreciation. You can take your expenses. Otherwise, you're taxed at a flat 30% on your rental income. Is it actually better to be a U.S. trader business than to have non-ECI? Because with the U.S. trader business, you get away from the 30% flat rate and you can claim deductions. Yeah, but again, it's all it's all like situational. So royalties is another good one. And I have a good example, like a, a, a real life example for this. So when you sell books on Amazon, 
they take 30% if you're a non-resident, right? If you're a non-resident and you're in your personal or you have an LLC or something that's disregarded. So as a client in Argentina, he sold books and Amazon was withholding 30% on the books. So what I did was I went back and elected it to be a U.S. trader business and filed amended returns and said that his books were physically located in the U.S. in the Amazon warehouse. So it's a U.S. trader business. And because you don't have a flat election, you have to like kind of make a case for it. There's election for certain things, but you can't just make an election for everything. Like you can't just say, oh, my dividends are U.S. source. Give me, let me tax it. Progressive rates. Because that's really all I want to do for this guy. Because he made like $10,000 and he should have paid like not 3000 wait, 30%. So yeah, 3000 he should have paid like, um, you know, like 1000 So he get the difference back. So they actually accepted it and uh, gave him the refunds two years later in the mail. It, uh, <laughs> they're so slow. But yeah, that's another example where like it's better if it, if it applies, but it's it's really situational because most businesses are, it, it would greatly complicate it to pay tax in the U.S. and in the other and the other country if it's U.S. source income and you don't have to pay tax on it. Like for the example of the, uh, the first example, if you're buying inventory and selling it in the U.S., then it's U.S. source. But you don't necessarily have to pay tax on that if you have no no stuff in the U.S. And that might be better for you depending on where you live. Yes, you don't necessarily pay tax on it because of the tax treaty. Well, not because of the tax treaty, just because it's not effectively connected income. It might be U.S. source, but it's not effectively connected income and not U.S. source. And it's not DAP income either. Fixed, determinable, annual, periodic. It's like actual business income. And the great example there is just Amazon itself. And, and that's the great example because... Amazon will let non-residents, foreigners, whatever you want to, the word you want to use, but non-residents, Australians can open an Amazon account, sell 100% of their products to Amazon, and Amazon will process the payments and won't withhold any taxes and give you 100% of your money, even though you're selling all to Americans and you're drop shipping. And if this was FEDAP income and taxable, the IRS would make Amazon withhold. And that would, have, that would be an easy thing for them to do and would have done that. And since they haven't, even, even though people are using Amazon fulfillment centers and keeping their inventory in the U.S., because it's with Amazon and it's not in their own private warehouse and they're not doing business, it's still not effectively connected income. So you're saying non-ECI income is never taxable in the US even if it's even if it's US sourced? Yes. Yes. And it's really interesting because Yeah, how is that possible when 882B clearly says a foreign corporation has two types of income and one of them is gross income derived from sources within the United States and not effectively connected? So the first bucket is gross income, which is derived from sources within the United States and which is not effectively connected with the conduct of a trade or business within the United States. So 8A2 clearly says the gross income of a foreign corporation includes non-ECI that is U.S. sourced. And again, this is for foreign corporations. I mean, most of my clients are individuals or using LLCs or some are using foreign corporations. But not, not many of them, honestly. Yeah, but the LLC is disregarded for federal tax purposes. So we are coming back to the foreign corporation. You know, if the sole member of the LLC is a foreign corporation, then we're looking at the foreign corporation again. Well, I mean, and it could be an individual. Yes, yes, of course, it could be an individual. Yes, I agree. Section 1A is a foreign corporation engaged in trader business in the United States shall be taxable. And the whole point is that it's not engaged in the U.S. trader business. I'm in 882 still. I just went up to, to A1, the general, the very first uh, sentence. So a foreign corporation engaged in trade or business is taxed based on Section 11. And Section 11 just says you pay 21% tax on the income. That paragraph 8A2 is just for foreign corporations that are connected with the United States business. Yeah, but it doesn't mean from that that any non-ECI income is 
tax-free in the States? Well, I mean, I go from the top down. I mean, a foreign corp engaged in trader business shall be taxable in Section 11. So it's not. So then we go to Section 2. It says, in determining taxable income for purposes of Paragraph 1, which is what we just read. So it says in general, and then it says determination of taxable income. So in determining the taxable income for paragraph one, gross income includes only gross income, which is effectively connected with the conduct of a U.S. trader business. Yeah, yeah, but that's because you are in the paragraph that is just for United States business. B clearly says in the case of a foreign corporation, gross income includes gross income, which is derived from sources within the United States, which is not effectively connected with the conduct of a trade or business. Yeah, I mean, it could be considered gross income, which is not subject to taxation. And, and, and it all builds on itself, right? That would be referencing more like the dividends, like FEDAP income, like the sourcing of the other kinds of income. But for determining, say, in general, imposition of tax and then determining the taxable income. So when you're determining taxable income, it, it says it only includes gross income effectively connected with a trader business in the United States. And, and then even though it includes gross income in the definition below, it includes U.S. source based on how you get to U.S. source income, which I also agree with. I would cite the determination of taxable income and say there's no taxable income. Maybe there's gross income, but there's no taxable income. You get to taxable income by taking gross income, less tax deductions. You get to taxable income. No, that you get to taxable income by uh, only including gross. It tells you how to determine the taxable income in, in 882A2. It says in determining taxable income, gross income includes only gross income effectively connected with U.S. trader business. You know, you're reading one thing. I'm reading the other thing. They both say different things, but they're both listed right next to each other. And it depends how you want to interpret it. And that's why I'm talking about the uh, the interpretation of the biggest business doing this in the US, um, doing uh, trillions of dollars in sales. I, I don't know what Amazon does in sales, but with foreign owned, you know, foreign Amazon accounts, if this was the case, Amazon, the IRS would have Amazon withhold taxes on all the sales um, on, on all the accounts owned by non-US people that uh, they have sales to, to the US people. Yeah, but they, they don't because of the tax treaty. No, I mean, you have to apply for the tax treaty. If you, if, uh, so, for, so for an investment account, if you are getting dividends, in order to stop them from withholding 30%, you have to affirmatively give them a WA Ben and claim a tax treaty. And that's what stops them from withholding 30%. Otherwise, they're going to just withhold 30%. Amazon just assumes that there is a U.S. trade or business, and hence they are not obliged to do withholding, and hence the tax position is sorted out in the tax return. I don't think that's the case. I mean, you're telling Amazon you're not a U.S. Per, you, you, especially with Walmart, you have to give them a WADCI if you're a foreign person. But still with Amazon, when you're applying, you basically fill out a WABEN unless you can fill out a W-9. Uh, the W-9 is saying you're US trader, a U.S. person, which is a U.S. trader business too. But these are really interesting points. You should really, have you seen the regulations on it? Because they go in so much more detail. The treasury regulations? Yeah. Yeah, I, I have looked into them so the very first part of 18821 which is the you know really what we're talking about tax on foreign corporations and u.s business the very first one says the section applies for purposes of determining the tax of a foreign corporation which at any time during the year is engaged in a u.s trader business it also applies for purposes of determining the tax of a foreign corporation which at no time during the taxable year is engaged in a trader business in the united states what you're saying Uh, what we, you know, you're saying, we're pointing out, but has for the taxable year real property income or interest on obligations of the U.S., which by reason of 882D or E, which is the election or bank stuff. But generally what happens is in almost in most countries, if even if people are selling stuff here, they don't pay. I mean, they have to pay tax in their home country. So like 
if you had an Amazon account, you'd still pay tax on everything in Australia. So it's not like you're not paying taxes because it's where you're living and where you're working is, is where you're paying taxes. And I think the interpretation is going to remain like this for a number of different reasons. This almost puts the IRS in a position to just tax the whole world. And it's, and it's like, it makes it a complete mess. And then other people are going to do the same thing when the U.S. buys stuff from other countries or when people sell into other countries. Because if I'm selling to people in Australia, I don't want to pay income taxes in Australia. You know, it's, that would be crazy. So there's basically a third bucket of income then. So there is ECI in one bucket. There is non-ECI that is not FDAP. And then there's FDAP. Yes, that's what I have FDAP specifically stated so that they can tax people on non-ECI U.S. source income, but only certain kinds instead of, instead of all of U.S. source non-ECI. That's why they have FDAP, because it's segregated. So FDAP is interest, dividends, royalties, etc. Then you have non-ECI, non-FDAP, basically. And then you have ECI. And so you're basically saying that non-ECA, non-FDAP is not taxable in the U.S., even though it is sourced in the U.S. That's what you're saying. Yes. Although extremely vague and we're only touching on it, I think it's supported in the code. And that's how I, and I think it's supported also by the actions of the IRS. Well, yeah, that's, that's, why, I'm, that's why I'm sticking to it. <laughs> it's much easier when the product is manufactured because then it's foreign source. Then we don't need to worry about it. The problem is basically when it's purchased and then sold in the U.S. So it's U.S. sourced. And then it all depends on whether you have a USTB or not. With the products being in the U.S., um, what's, what did I reference all the time? Yeah, somewhere it says that just using a distribution center in the U.S. doesn't make it a USTB. That's, that's the one you want to reference, correct? Or C3, yeah, I guess. But if you, yeah, basically if you have an agent in the U.S. who is working in the ordinary course of their business to do something for you, then it doesn't mean you have a U.S. trader business. Yeah, because the agent is independent. It only gives you a USTB if the agent is dependent on you. And that's similar to the definition of permanent establishment in the treaty. Yeah, exactly. With the single member LLC, who has to file the year 5472? Yes, the LLC itself has to file the 5472 with a pro forma 11.20. But does the single member also have to file a 5472? No, just the LLC has to file. And you have to, on the form, you report the, the ownership up to the ultimate owner. And you have to report all 25% owners or more. And then all related party transactions, either with, with the owners or other companies that you're doing business with. So it's often like I'll have clients that will have more than one U.S. company. So we'll file 5472s reporting the transactions between the companies. Although when you're doing it with another U.S. company, you don't actually have to disclose what the transactions are. So it's an interesting technicality, I suppose, to make it easier. But it's, it's interesting because... I mean, it's not that interesting probably for most people, but I think it's interesting because it's generally assumed that the IRS, because the, the form was written for foreign-owned corporations. It, the form was all designed and written for foreign-owned corporations, and they just repurposed the use of it for foreign-owned single-member LLCs and added one little section to the, the code um, to also include a foreign-owned single-member LLC under the entities required to file on the on the code that governs the completion of that form. So if a foreign corporation acts, trades in its own name in the in the States, then they need to file a 5472 themselves together with an 1120F. But if a foreign corporation trades in the US through an LLC, a single-member LLC, then the single-member LLC will file the 5472 plus a pro forma 1120 And then the foreign corporation has to file an 1120F, correct? Yeah, I mean, 
Yeah, I've never filed a 5472 for a foreign corporation engaged in the US trader business, but uh, I, I've just never had that come up. Because they always trade through an LLC. Yeah, generally they trade. Yeah, I mean, it's just not advantageous to have a foreign corp engaged in US trader business. It's just like, it's never good. It's never the way to do it. So no matter what, they're either going to use an LLC and have no, no effectively connected income with the US trader business, or they're going to use a corporation and actually do business in the US. But it's like extremely rare that a foreign corp would actually do anything in the US. Sometimes. Why? That really surprises me that you say that because I have quite a few clients who trade directly in the US just as an Australian Propriety Limited through Amazon. Of course, now they have problems with insurance and so are changing to an LLC. But until recently, they traded in the US as a foreign corporation without any problems. And they just filed a 5472 as a foreign corporation. I mean, I'm talking about having an actual um, business in the US, like having like a, a storefront or something. So. Ah, I see. Yeah, yes, of course. Generally, the LLC, just having an LLC because there's not very much you have to do with it anyways other than this little filing. And you have to do it anyways if you have a foreign corp. So just like generally the LLC is easier with a U.S. bank account and, and you know, yes, having I it. Agree. So generally it's a little easier and there's not any additional filing requirements. So that's, you know, and it's more you can you can do more stuff with it. But if you're actually doing business in the U.S., you would never use the foreign corp. It's just with branch profits, taxes and all the it's way more complicated for no reason. But I understand what you're saying too. Yeah, there are definitely foreign courts who, who sign up on Amazon or, or do or do some kind of sell to US clients, but not really in a US trader business. So that means when you're trading as a foreign corporation, as an Australian Propriety Limited in the US through an LLC, then the LLC files the 5472 plus the 1120, but you as a foreign corporation don't have to file a 5472. So you only file the 1120F, correct? The 1120F is really a protected filing. So, yes. I mean, yeah, I would I was always file the 1120F. I don't know about the 5472, to be honest with you. I would have to check the uh, the instructions and the code again to see like when, because I don't know if it would have a reportable transaction depending on how it was operating. I guess if it's sending money back and forth to the LLC, potentially it would have to do that. But it says, you know, it's not engaged in a US trader business if it's using an LLC. So mm -hmm. I probably wouldn't file a 5472 for the foreign corp. And just the 1120F as a protective. If you're using the foreign corp and, and directly to sell stuff and do it, like, sure, I guess it's it's fine. You can do it. And it, I, it wouldn't be bad to do it if you're filing on time. But if I had an LLC, I probably wouldn't wouldn't do it. I would just still do the 1120F. And that's more from an income tax protection because this is this is just a civil thing. It's yes. like an informational filing. Uh, I'm not the be all end all of this stuff. I'm just like in the trenches and. And the IRS doesn't give us very much guidance. You know, we do the best we can, but the U.S. remains a very business-friendly place. And, and the IRS is pretty terrible. They don't check anything. They're understaffed. You mail something to them, they respond in like eight months. So, you know, even if I'm doing things right or wrong, I don't really know for a couple of years from now. Um, but I, I'm trying my best to be educated and I appreciate you having me on. This is really interesting. Welcome back. Some time has passed since I recorded this episode and while I spoke with James, I struggled to come around to his point of view. I had Gary Carter's voice in my head and with that, what James was saying made no sense. But this time over the next few episodes, it will start making a lot more sense and there will be others that confirm James' view. 
So in the next update, US 17, let's talk about multi-member LLCs with James Baker. And then in the two weeks after that, let's dissect Section 882 and 864 of the Internal Revenue Code with Brian Kelly of Wilkie Fine Gallagher in Los Angeles, who you met before in US update number 12. Until then, thank you for coming over. Please let me know what you think. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.